open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. We all have moments in our training and in our careers that test our dedication. These stressful events try us in ways that often require us to, in a sense, recommit to our commitment to ophthalmology. It's not to say we don't love what we do, it's just that sometimes the going gets really tough. When I first heard about the journey Dr. Carolini Roca took to get to where she is today, there was one word resounding in my mind, ambition. Carolini has an amazing list of credentials. She contributes extensively to our understanding of optics, serves as an active mentor, and above all, as a dedicated wife and new mother. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Carolini takes us on her journey from Brazil to the U.S., recounting the challenges she faced along the way and the mentors who helped her in her pursuit. She also sheds light on spherical aberrations, premium lenses, and the importance of efficiency in being a successful practitioner and parent. Up next, Carolini. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Carolini Rocha. And Carolini is one of those people that when you meet, you instantly gravitate towards. You want to hear more about how she takes care of her patients, takes care of her family. And as I got to learn more about her story, I realized that as much respect as I had for her on the surface, there is so much more beneath the surface of, of how she got to where she is today. And so I thought it'd be a fantastic idea to uh, have Carolini come on and talk about her journey and uh, sort of what's exciting her about ophthalmology today. So Carolini, thank you so much for uh, coming on and being willing to uh, talk with us today. Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here and uh, to talk about my um, story. Yeah. So let's just talk, let's just start out about maybe when you decided um, living in Brazil that you were interested in ophthalmology. I know that you got your PhD and your MD. And so just give us a little bit of a backstory of your early interests in ophthalmology. Maybe we can just kind of start there. Yeah. So uh, uh, during uh, med school, I, I I knew I wanted to do something um, uh, uh, a surgical uh, subspecialty, and uh, I had opportunity. I had a rotation in ophthalmology, and I was just in love and how you can just you know uh, um, uh, look at the eye and, uh, and and make the diagnosis like this patient has diabetes or is a hypertensive patient or uh, that uh, toxoplasmosis. The lesions right. are so um, uh, typical. You can just make the diagnosis and treat the patients. So yes, I, I was fascinated with cataract surgery and transplants, and I think that's why I decided um, uh, to proceed and um, and to go into ophthalmology. So did you did you have your PhD? When did your PhD start? Was that during residency? Was it before residency? When did you do your PhD? I guess I don't even know that story. Yeah, so uh, in Brazil, it's a little bit different. I know here uh, some programs you can do your MD and PhD program. In Brazil, you can do actually after your residency. Okay. Yes, but it's nice because you can focus it. For me, for example, my, my thesis was on um, uh, Wavefront and IOLs. Okay. So it was really perfect because it's it's something that I'm uh, passionate about. And yeah. It's a, something what a that great I've been studying for a couple of years. Yeah, what a great opportunity to really dive deep into something that's going to affect your patients and your career for the rest of your life. 
So you had the opportunity to go to the med school, figure out that you were passionate about ophthalmology and optics, and then you did your PhD after residency. Is that correct? You did your yes. residency and then you did your PhD. Yeah, so I did my training in Brazil in Sao Paulo at uh, UNIFESP, is a Escola Paulista de Medicina, one of the best programs in Brazil, uh, great training. Um, and then actually, uh, the and then after my residency, I started the, a PhD program. It's really nice because you kind of do a fellowship in your PhD at the same time oh, good. in Sao okay. Paulo. And then you did, how many fellowships have you done? There's sort of, I, I've heard, but I'm not, I want to confirm the number. How many fellowships <laughs> did you actually complete? Okay, so so I finished my training uh, in uh, 2005 in Sao Paulo. And actually during that first year, I did glaucoma. So okay. I did glaucoma, very old school, lots of traps and tube shunts. And, and then after that, when I was planning to apply, you know, for the PhD program, I, um, uh, I started doing some research on IOLs and Wavefront. And then uh, during my PhD, I was working uh, in the cornea and uh, refractive surgery um, uh, um, uh, divisions in Brazil. So you sort of did a cornea refractive fellowship during your PhD, it sounds like. Yes. Okay. And then at some point, you decided it was time to come to the United States to get some either additional training or well, tell, walk me through your decision to come to the U.S. So um, I was um, uh, in Brazil. You, we have an opportunity to apply for a grant. So uh, for your postdoc, you know, doing the PhD uh, training, and um, I said, you know, it will be a really great opportunity um, to come to the U.S. for one year. And then one year I, only. Only one year only, and then yes. I was planning to go back to Brazil. So this was back in I would say end of 2007, 2008, um, uh, and then I applied for this grant, and I got the grant, and I was very excited. So that's why um, I then uh, moved to Cleveland to the Cleveland Clinic. Okay, so you did a year there, and something happened. That made you want to stay. <laughs> I know. I know. So <laughs> I think trouble. At, at some point, you, something happened that made you want to stay. And, and probably we can talk to George about that on another occasion, George wearing the fourth. So you decided to stay. And then it's it, it, you must have had to do the calculation that I'm going to have to go through this all again. Yes. So um, I actually, I had a great, great opportunity at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, my mentor, uh, Ronald Kruger, I had the opportunity to work with B.J. Dupes and um, uh, Dr. Steve Wilson, just really great, great mentors and very thankful. And so when I, and then I had uh, a, um, uh, a, initially a grant from Brazil, right, to right. stay one year, but then uh, with, uh, with the Cleveland Clinic, they offered me to stay one more year. And it was really nice. I was doing um, some projects. Projects, um, uh, uh, working with adaptive optics technology at that time. Uh, Dr. Kruger was finishing the Wavefront guided trial, so it was really great. But then, yes, that's true. It was when I met, I met George, okay. <laughs> and everything changed because <laughs> I was supposed to go back to Brazil. <laughs> right, right. So you said, okay, I'm gonna. At some point, you said, I'm gonna stay and I'm gonna retrain, and that had to be a pretty big decision. To yes. be willing to retrain. That's true. And then uh, George was finishing his training uh, in Kansas City with mm -hmm. Dan Dury, and he was planning to move back to Atlanta. 
Um, and then I had a, 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 an opportunity to uh, do a, actually another fellowship in cornea refractive at okay. Emory University with Dr. Brad Random and, and Dr. Stolting. Again, great, great mentors. Um, um, and then it was when I was deciding, should I go ahead and redo my training? So it was really hard um, to take all the USMLE, uh, right? Step one, step two, um, step oh. two, um, the, the CKCS, and, uh, and then step three. Right. And oh, my then, gosh. And then you had to repeat your intern year as well, correct? Yes, yes. And then um, I was... Uh, extremely extremely happy i matched at the cleveland clinic but then i i did one year of internship that's 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 really really hard yeah oh my gosh so that's why you know it's really interesting you just you can hear people talk and and realize there's sort of different layers to um what they're talking about and I, i picked that up pretty quickly when we had had conversations about things and uh, knowing all of this backstory is, I think, very, very interesting. I'd, I'd be interested to get your take on the differences in training in Brazil versus the U.S. And, and we had a conversation about this, I don't know, a few months ago. And you really had a, some great stories about both the training there and also you helped train residents for a while as, down there as well. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. So talk to me about the differences. What did you like about one system versus the other? And I'm sure there were disadvantages or advantages of either. So... Sure, that's a great question. I think in Brazil, um, same as uh, what we see in India, um, uh, we have a really, really high volume of, of surgeons. Uh, the surgeries, uh, the surgeons are uh, fantastic and very creative. It's just because you know all the, the the really hard cases that we see in Brazil, and I would say in India, um, I think a, a third year resident, he's really um, um, he's seen a lot of complications and how to deal with complications. I would say maybe this is number one. Uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, the technology that is is available and uh, how you really really need to study um, hard, like genetics, neuroptomology. Pathology. Um, um, uh, um, I think you know it's 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 a really great combination. You know, I think I've learned so much during my second residency in the U.S. for sure. Right. So maybe some strengths in didactics and and some of the the, the standards, but also some strengths in Brazil on the experience side of things, where you really are expected to be able to handle all sorts of crazy situations. Yes, and then I, I, there's a funny story. I remember we had this huge room with 10 beds and everybody doing uh, cataract surgeries at the same time. And we had our retina uh, guys doing vitrectomy in the corner. You know? <laughs> and, and didn't you tell me that the, the retina guys are sort of like really like excited when they got a chance to sort of jump in and do a vitrectomy and when when things necessarily didn't go perfectly it kind of gave them an opportunity to have a, a chance to operate <laughs> that's true the retina fellows that you just walk around and say mm, do you have anything for me there right. <laughs> <laughs> they were just waiting right. for they're a drop a drop lens, lens right. and right. they're ready to go and you would just move the the bed you know oh my from the, gosh from the, the, the <laughs> from one side of the room from one over. side to the dark side the, the dark side. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, Carolina, you've done so much research. I want to get in a little bit deeper. I love hearing your story, and it's really inspiring all the work you've gone through to get here and um, makes me appreciate. Um, I thought my road was tough. <laughs> it was no- nothing compared to what you've gone through. But 
talk to me a little bit about what is exciting to you in ophthalmology. What keeps you engaged? Maybe talk a little bit about your research. I know you've done a lot of work in pseudo accommodation. So talk to me about what you're still excited about and what what really motivates you right now in ophthalmology. Yes, um, I think my, my research actually started in Brazil. Um, my mentor, uh, Wallace Ishamon, and we had this idea, I know, to measure patients with uh, spherical lenses. And, you know, at that time, we remember we were just um, launching the uh, aspheric IOLs. And then <clears throat> at the same time, I had the opportunity to work with uh, the adaptive optics technology that you can measure uh, wavefront aberrations and then correct the aberrations and then simulate, you know, what happens if you give a little bit of spheric aberration or a little bit of coma, can you extend the depth of focus? Um, and, uh, and we publish uh, uh, lots of studies, and I, I, and I continue to work on this area. But I think my goal is, um, especially when I'm seeing patients now, um, what is the best technology for that patient? So we well, know... Yeah, um, well, talk, talk to me about that. So what are your working theses on maybe one type of patient that would maybe be better with the monovision or one patient that may be better with EDOF or who is better for a multifocal? What are your thoughts on that, if you have some? Sure, I look at, I would say, the corneal profile, right? Is it the, the patient that has a lot of um, positive spheric aberration? I look at the pupil size or someone that had a myopic ablation or a hyperopic ablation. And then I try to match, you know, the best lens. For example, if I see a patient with uh, keratoconus or a lot of coma, I may select just an aberration-free lens. Right. Um, same for a patient that had a hyperopic ablation right. that has a lot of negative spheric aberration to start with. And then I know that negative spheric aberration enhances the depth of focus. These patients, again, based on our study, sometimes if you use aberration-free lens, they can see distance and near. They have a really good extended range of vision. Because of that pre-existing negative spheric aberration from their hyperopic LASIK. Exactly. Very interesting. And then, and then now we know again, the, but when you're talking about premium lenses and all the newer lenses, Symphony, um, um, active focus lenses, uh, you still need to look at the topography and try to rule out uh, uh, patients with really high, high order aberrations, especially coma. You want to make sure that patient is a good candidate uh, for so coma. IOLs. It sounds like coma is one of those things. And, and I've heard this and we, we use this as well, but that seems like a, a, a thing you're very much keyed into when you're looking at patients potentially for multifocal, for example. It's a great point because we know that general rule, you know, if the higher order aberrations are greater than 0.5 or 0.6 uh, uh, RMS for a 6 millimeter pupil should not do a premium lens. But one thing that I've learned while doing um, research with adaptive optics is that some aberrations are worse. Right. So when not they, all aberrations are created equally. They are not the same. If we look at the Zernike, right, the um, um, uh, pyramid, um, basically, if you are um, adding a coma versus spheric aberration or trefoil, we know that uh, all aberrations right at, in the center of the Zernike, right, they are worse. Right. So right. Inclu sense. including defocus. Right. So defocus is spheric aberration. So I remember when we're testing, you know, sometimes if you give um, trefoil or you're generating quadrifoil, the patients, they still can see. And right. The same amount of coma, you, they lose lines of vision. That is, that is a really great point that I think we need to uh, keep in our minds that 
not just looking at the RMS number, but actually looking at which um, which Zernike polynomial is making up the majority of that. That makes a lot of sense. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you're obviously someone who works very hard, but you have a family, and I'm sure you have other interests, and it's really hard um, for the best of us with less going on to keep life you know, working and trying to figure out this whole balance and work-life balance. How does that work for you? What are your philosophies on perhaps taking on new projects or saying no to things so that you can devote time to other opportunities? I just love, I mean, you're, you're someone I respect so much, uh, not just professionally, but personally. I would just love to learn from you of how, how do you go through, you know, figuring out opportunities to dive into and then also opportunities to say, no, I need to have some time for myself. Yes, and um, we have a little baby, uh, <laughs> yes. George V. Yes, um, absolutely. We're all excited to, to, to watch him grow up in ophthalmology, <laughs> so yes. Uh, we're really busy, um, but I've learned uh, to be very efficient. You know, when I'm done with uh, uh, my OR days, usually I finish around 2, 3 p.m., and I go straight home and uh, sometimes you know when the baby's taking a nap I'm like finishing up like a paper and I know I have that one or two hours you right. know, I need to get things done um, but it's really important I think family's number one um, uh, some meetings I sometimes I wish I could stay for the whole thing but several times I just fly in for a talk and I fly back home right so it's 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 really but you know it's I think family is number one yeah well I think that's uh we I totally agree and it is all about being efficient and realizing you don't have the luxury of being lazy you know sometimes we just want to sort of do a little bit of uh a little bit of nothing for a while but um when we are efficient if we don't have that luxury it really does drive home that point that uh, being efficient and using your time wisely and um that sort of thing is most important so, Carolini, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit about your story. Um, I think it's something that we can all find ways to relate to. And also, um, again, when I think of you, I think of someone who I just tremendously respect and I learn from. So thank you for teaching me a little bit and sharing your story today. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. And uh, we are always open for, you know, um, students, new residents and uh, open for questions. You know, I know sometimes people, they call me from Brazil. I mean, um, uh, you can do everything you want to do. I love it. Yes. I love it. Carolini's dedication is an inspiring reminder of what it means to be committed to our field, our practice, our patients, and our families. I can't imagine training and retraining, but on behalf of everyone in ophthalmology, Carolini, we're sure glad you did. That's all for this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe. Also, your feedback means more than I can say, so please log on and leave us your review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.